Welcome to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast, where storytellers have a chance to bite it live. This event was recorded on August 12th, 2014 at WOMR, Provincetown's Outermost Community Radio. Tonight's host is Joe Richmond, and the theme for the evening is Flying High. So Flying High has reminded me of a woman named Elizabeth Eyre Taylor, who when I met her, I met her about 12 years ago, and she, at the time she was 79, living in the woods in, in the Berkshires in this house she shared with um, many cats and dogs and some parrots that she had rescued, maybe not the parrots she had rescued. And she was the kind of woman, if you ran into her at the coffee shop or the gas station or whatever, you would, you know, she would think that she was tall and elegant for 79, but you might think she was kind of an eccentric woman with a lot of cats and leave it at that. But I had come to visit her because after talking to her on the phone, she had given me an invitation that I couldn't refuse, which was a ride in her Piper Archer 2, which some of you actually responded to those words. <laughs> Sounds like I know what I'm talking about, Piper Archer 2. Um, I did not know what a Piper Archer Basically, I found out that a Piper Archer 2 is essentially a lawnmower with wings. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, like a, like a nice lawnmower. Um, some of you know more about that. It's a two-seater airplane, <laughs> propeller, and... Um, I, at the time, I didn't have a habit of jumping into airplanes with 79-year-old women, but I knew something about Elizabeth Air Taylor that, that um, a lot of people around her didn't even know at the time, which was that she'd been flying for 60 years, and not just small planes like that. She'd been flying more complicated, bigger planes, because the other thing about her was that she had been a WASP, which in this case, WASP meant Women's Air Force Service Pilot. Um, how many of you know what, what the Women's Air Force Service Pilots were in World War II? Any of you heard about it? Okay, some of you. So basically, in, during World War II, the Air Force had a problem, which was that most of the male pilots were overseas fighting, and all these planes were coming off the assembly line, and they needed women, they needed people, pilots, to fly them to the bases and do other things. And they started training women who had, had a little bit of flight experience. And they, over the next two years, they trained 1,000 women to do ferrying missions. Some flew big bombers that were you know, new models that were coming off the assembly lines. Some flew, and I love this, some flew target practice, which essentially meant you, care, you trail a big bullseye behind you, many hundreds of yards behind you, while men on the ground shoot anti-aircraft weaponry <laughs> at you. So it, you know, it, it was, um, they weren't in combat, but it was dangerous work, and 38 women died over the two-year program. The other interesting thing about it was that these women were in military bases. They were, in every way, they were part of the military, except they were not considered military, which meant, in the end, that they did not get the benefits, of course. So when the men came back, and the women were no longer needed, in 1944, the program was, was, uh, was stopped, and many of the women paid their own bus fare home. So. After the war, the program was sort of forgotten about, and so much so that in 1976, the Air Force announced this, it was like these big press releases, we're taking 18 women and we're gonna have this experimental program, we're training women to be pilots for the first time in history. And the WASPs were not, um, uh, were not um, happy about that. Um, so they launched a campaign to get official recognition, which a year later they did, and they were officially named uh, uh, veterans and given the benefits um, 30 years later. Woo! Woo! All right. <laughs> Not even as to the important part of the story, but anyway. Um, so I'm um, fast forward to 2002 when I first found out about the WASPs and started to interview a whole bunch of them for a documentary on NPR. And specifically, Elizabeth Air Taylor was so important because she was the last one I could find who was still flying. So. Um, I'm talking about her today because she actually died recently. She was 90 when she died. And one interesting thing that I thought, um, that, I, that I found after she died is that there was very little mention of her. There was an obit in the Berkshire Eagle where she lived, and that was it. So the first thing I'm, I want to do tonight is to give a little shout out to Elizabeth Air Taylor, who was a military pilot long before women were ever in the military. Um, maybe just a quick <laughs> But the, the second reason I'm thinking about her and mentioning her tonight is because to me, it was, she was like this lesson in 
you know, all the people that you see every day that are kind of invisible, you know, the people who are, um, you know, who serve you your coffee or who uh, teach your children or sometimes even our own family members or uh, uh, the people in this room who we don't know their stories. We don't know what makes them unique or special. And, um, you know, and it's those stories that turn kind of a stereotype, like, you know, an eccentric woman with a lot of cats into someone or like a real human being. Um, and there is one trick to getting people to tell their stories. And it's a trick that we all know, but it's a trick that sometimes I think we all forget, which is to ask. And so tonight, um, Vanessa and Caitlin have asked for our stories. And I want to thank them for that. I want to thank you all for supporting and listening. And especially the, I don't know how many we have now, but the people who are brave enough to actually get up here and tell them. Um, because it's a great thing to just tell your story. And that's it. We're going to move on to the first one. Let's begin. Our first storyteller for the evening is Jerry Brady. I've been recruited into this because the story, number of stories seems to be a little thin tonight. So here's how I'm going to stretch into the theme. You're now at about maybe 12 feet above sea level. I'm going to fly you back 80 years in time and 7,000 feet in elevation into the Idaho wilderness in the year 1924. Uh, we're there because of my father. Not my story, but you got me in here, Joe. I'm going to tell it anyway. <laughs> so my father's living in Pocatello, Idaho in the 1920s. His father has a friend named uh, Boyle, and Mr. Boyle has a ranch. And the ranch is way, way, way gone from Pocatello, Idaho, which is way, way gone from everywhere else. Anyway, he says, I'd like my, my, my grandfather says, I'd like my kids to get a vigorous life and I want to train them up. I said, okay, take them to Boyle's Ranch. So every summer for about eight or 10 years, all the members of my family trooped off to Boyle's Ranch. You didn't actually troop off, you could barely get there. The roads were like this. They went across the desert. You couldn't find your way. Then you'd get to the Salmon River, and you'd follow up the Tramon River. Then you'd turn right at the, Yellowstone, at the uh, Yankee Fork Dam, and you'd go through the ghost, ghost town of Bannock and the ghost town of, of Custer, and you'd go over Lost Trail Pass. Oh, it was so dangerous, you almost might fall off and die. Finally, you get down the other side, and you get to Boyle's Ranch. Oh. Boyle's Ranch was a thrilling place to me as a kid because my dad took me there. It was a real ranch. It was way out there. Today it's called the Frank Church Wilderness River of No Return Wilderness. <laughs> uh, it really is a wilderness. One little place, one little ranch. They had cows, they had cowboys, <laughs> they had my family, and they had Mr. Boyle. So anyway, the routine was you'd, you'd work. My dad rode, uh, when I was a kid, I had his, I had his shaps in the basement. They're, they're rig, ugly things of, of uh, long-haired sheep, black. And anyway, I loved, those, I loved those shaps. My dad was a cowboy. Anyways, here's the story. So they go to this place and there's nothing to do, nothing. Work with cows, get up in the morning, milk cows, take in hay, hay round up cows, 10 cows, but on Saturday night, you've got to go to the Stanley Stomp. Stanley Stomp is not easy to get to either. You've got to go back over Loon Creek Pass, past Banner and Custer, past Yankee Fork, turn right, go up the Salmon River, you get to the big valley, you finally get to Stanley. Stanley's a rough town. Stanley's got cowboys. Stanley's got sheep people. And there were millions of sheep in Idaho at that time. They're not anymore. So they, everybody came to the Stanley Stomp. It was called the Stomp because this is the way you dance. You sort of dance like this way. <laughs> Grab your lady. <laughs> Wasn't very sophisticated dancing. And this is not a very sophisticated story. Anyway, they all pile in the car. They go over to the Stanley Stomp. It takes about two hours to get there. They go to the dance. Here's my, my uncle, my dad. My Aunt Rosanna. My Aunt Rosanna is a beautiful woman. She's very young, and she's there. And the Stanley Stomp, I've been there. It's just a big room. 
band in the middle. The band sometimes didn't make it through the end of the night. It was so rough, the drum would get kicked in. <laughs> anyway, they're having this dance. Men are on this side. Women are on this side. It's like sophomore cotillion, you know? <laughs> and so this, my wife, my, my aunt Rosanna's sitting there, and this cowboy comes up to her, and he says, ma'am, I'd like to dance with you. Could I have this dance? She said, okay. Then he said, ma'am, I don't know how to dance, <laughs> but I'd sure like to hold you while you do. <laughs> That's the end of the story. There's just a little, there's just a little coda to this story. <laughs> 70 years later, I'm practicing law in Washington, D.C., in Georgetown. I'm in this old office that I was in called the flour mill and uh, late at night, and someone comes into the square next to me, right on the CNO Canal, and they're setting up straw bales for a dance. And over the entrance to this place puts up a sign that says, Stanley Stomp. <laughs> Somebody has held the Stanley Stomp in the place where I'm working 80 years later, or 70 years later, 2,500 miles away. So I get to go out to the Stanley Stomp that night in Washington, D.C. and tell this story before I told you. Thank you. <laughs> Next on the stage is Linda Sterner. Tell you about a time I was flying high, which was when I met my birth parents. I was adopted, and when my parents got me at a year old, they told me the chosen baby story, which is a story they told me every night, and I had to have that story told before I went to bed. The story went we picked you out from all the babies in the hospital. Most parents have to take what they got, but we chose you. <laughs> so I had this story to go to sleep, and you know, I really want to know who I was, where I came from. And growing up, it was uh, sort of in the background, but as I became a teenager, I began to think, I have to find out who are these people. And there was no way to find out, and really no information on it. But as I got older, and when I got married and I had my first son, I said, no, 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 now I need to find out. And at that time, there was an organization called the Adoptees Liberty Movement Association, ALMA, and they gave you search information. So I kind of lucked into it, and I went to them. First time, I went to the organization, and I heard people speak, my mother, my father. I got a lump in my throat, and I thought, I would just, I couldn't contain myself. I thought I would just sob. And I, then I said to myself, oh, yeah, this is something. This means something. <laughs> this is moving you. So I proceeded with the search. It took about a year, and I went to public records. I went um, to the city of Buffalo where I was born. I, uh, I did asked all kinds of people I knew. And slowly but surely, I came up with a name. I got, um, I, I spoke to the city and I said, I was born and I, my name was Beck, Becker, but I didn't know that for sure. So I wrote to them saying my name was Beck, Beck Beckerman. And I kind of crossed things out and curlicued them. And back came a birth certificate that said, <laughs> Anita Ann Becker. From then, I traced her and I found her and I found her brother, there are things called uh, city directories where they you can find a phone number and you find the name of people living there. I, her brother was still alive and I called him and I said, you know, I went to work with your sister and now I'm back in New Buffalo and I'd love to see your sister. He said, well, here's her number. Well, I sat on that number for about six weeks because I didn't know how to pick up the phone. I didn't know what I was going to say. Finally, I did. And I called her and I said, hi, this is Linda. And she said, what took you so long? <laughs> Excuse me? I said, well, you called my brother six weeks ago and you never called. I said, how did you know that? She said, I knew. I knew it was my past coming back to haunt me. <laughs> So I said, well, would you like to meet? I just kept plowing through things she was saying because I didn't want to stop and feel them or backtrack. 
So we agreed to meet in Buffalo at this old, lovely Park Lane restaurant, which had been in, in the pretty section, old, pretty section of Buffalo. So I flew in from New York, and I rented a car, and I got to the restaurant. And instead of this beautiful old Georgian building, there was a Swiss cafe, a Swiss chalet. <laughs> the place had burnt down, and they had built something else. Nevertheless, I went in, and I waited. It was time. She was supposed to come in. And I see a woman standing, you know, sitting across from me, but she didn't look like she was looking for anyone. Then a friend of my adoptive parents came in, and I felt terrible, and I ran and hid in the cloakroom. <laughs> I'm thinking there, you're 36 years old, you're hiding. You come back out. The woman had then been seated, and I said, I looked, and she looked at me, and I looked at her, and, she, and I said, Bertha? And she said, Linda, and she gave me a big disgusted look. I mean, we sat across from each other for 20 minutes. Neither of us recognized each other. Don't you think there should have been some? And she had a picture of me. Anyway, we went into the dining room, and she waved hello to my parents' friends. I went, uh-oh. Well, I had been born and adopted in the same city. And that usually doesn't happen. Usually, if you're born in Buffalo, they send you to Cleveland or Erie. No, I was in the same city. So all of my family, both adopted and birthed, were interconnected. They knew each other. They, they played bridge together. They went to, and it just blew my mind. So I sat down. And after she had waved hello to these friends, I said, she said, I just want you to know I had nothing to do with it. <laughs> and she said, no, my brother. My brother made all the decisions. And I said, oh, OK. So my brother made the decisions. And then she proceeded to talk. Now, we were very stiff with each other. We didn't really warm up to each other. I liked her. She was nice. And I think probably maybe she liked me. But we were, not, we were on our best behavior. A couple months later, I said to her, well, do you know who my father is? Which was not the way to ask it. You know, could have been, I'd like to meet your fa my father. Is there, you know? And she said, no, no, I play, I play poker with him every Saturday night. <laughs> I said, well, you know, I'd like to meet him. And she said, well, you'll come to lunch. So I came back to Buffalo, and I went to the apartment where she lived and with her husband, then husband. And my birth father was there. And he was this kind of man that, was, that drew people towards him. I mean, he was sitting down. Everyone in the room would move towards him. He was very magnetic. And I looked at him, and he looked at me, and I, it was like a dream. He said, who does she look like? Now, no one had ever asked that about me before. And I looked at them, and they both looked at each other. And they said, both of us. So, I said, well, tell me the story. He said, well, the baby we had died. I said, wait a minute. Uh, <laughs> I know you could tell your family that the baby died, but I'm alive. So you know, I didn't die. No, no, they said, the baby we had died. We got married, we had a baby, and the baby died. And I said, am I in the wrong family? <laughs> so he said, no, we had another baby. We got separated, we, we separated, we got an annulment, and we had another baby. But meanwhile, I had gotten someone else pregnant, so I had to marry her. So this was my father with, and, he's, and you know, I had a feeling that there could have been lots of brothers and sisters that could have been <laughs> roaming around. But it was very, very nice. And he said to me, how come you only have one child? And I thought, well, he doesn't get a right to say that to me. But I loved meeting him. I loved hearing their stories. And for the first time in my life, I felt whole. So I was flying high. Coming up to the mic is Carol Kleiner. Gosh, I didn't know I was going to be here tonight. I didn't know Whoa. I was going to be doing this till two minutes ago. So I am really flying high to share with you about myself. Um, I'm flying high these days because I looked at my financial situation and um, I'm 61 and I can look forward to retiring like in four years. Whereas I thought maybe I would have to work till I absolutely died. So this is very good news. And what's come to mind is that um, 
I'm contrasting it with a time, oh, 30 years ago when I was flying high off the streets of um, um, Boulder, Colorado, when I um, got notice that I had received Section 8 for um, subsidized housing so my then four-year-old daughter could live with me. So what's happening between now and then is what I'm flying high about and where I am now in my life. Um, I think back to those days, and um, about 25 years ago, um, I had made a move from Boulder to California with the hopes of going back to school and had packed this little car with a lot of stuff. And I laughed because I got um, somebody who has to help me pack my car who had more of spatial relationship sense. And I didn't want to leave much behind because I didn't want to nickel and dime myself to death buying little things that are necessities. And I was really traveling and moving um, on a very thin paper dollar. And um, so the car was packed two levels, the ironing board being the middle partition. So I had two levels, and everything was packed, and I literally had to squeeze myself into the driver's seat. So when I stopped, wherever I stopped, people would look at me. And I thought it was very clever. Um, <laughs> but what it also reminded me of, not having you know, two nickels to rub together, was that I was crossing um, some very hot parts of the country, and it was summer. And um, you know, I had in my mind, when, when you use your air conditioning in your car, it uses more gas. And I was um, running on fumes for this trip because I had not a pot to piss in. And um, came to the hottest parts of Utah in summer, and crossing, you know, barren highways. There is nothing there. And um, I didn't want to turn on my air conditioning and use that fuel that cost money. And I got drowsy at the wheel. And for the first time ever in my driving career, I fell asleep and found myself, thank God, uh, with my foot on the brake and pulled off to the side of the road. And um, I tried to rest and get some sleep because this was, not, this was not good. And I continued on that dry, dusty, hot, barren road, still so stubborn not to spend any money that I did not put my AC on even then. And lo and behold, a short time later, the same thing happened. And I found myself on the side of the road. It's like, whoa, shoot me now. You know, um, and I don't remember after that if I put the AC on or not, most likely, but I did make it um, safely to um, Eureka, California, where it was cold mm -hmm. in the summertime and not sunny like Boulder, Colorado in the summertime. And I was shivering in my shorts. Um, but just to, you know, kind of fast track, um, I've had opportunities to go back to school I've had opportunities to, um, to get support from parents to allow me to do that. I've had the opportunities to get my foot in the public school system and have a teaching career in public schools for the last 14 years, which will afford me enough to retire on. So I don't know, I'm just flying high that um, you know you live long enough and things change and there's always hope and I'm just really grateful for all of the, the opportunities I've had in my life. Um, yeah, so there it is. Thank you. <laughs> Our next storyteller is Addison Dowell. So I've got a story, and that story consists of three parts. And it's literally flying, flying high, and then a distinct lack of flying. So I do Model UN, if anyone's done that. And Model UN is kind of like the top tier of nerdy school activities. It's like the point at which you can talk about it with your friends, but also where you get questions like, oh, so it's like playing pretend. <laughs> kind of. But it's so much cooler. So what, what happened, and how I knew the weekend was going to be great, 
is that every weekend, probably once a month, we go out on a trip to some school and we do Model UN with people from all over the world and it's so cool. But I knew that weekend was going to be special when we were strolling into Logan Airport and my friend Rachel said, hey Addison, look to the right. And there was Jesse Eisenberg in the flesh. So of course she approached him, he left very shortly afterward. We got on the plane and we wound up in Newark, New Jersey. Now, we were going to the Princeton Model UN Conference. And the thing about Newark and Princeton <laughs> is they are two very different places. <laughs> I assumed we were going to be at the bright, beautiful, stony-walled Princeton campus where everything's magical and nothing ever bad happens. But what happened instead is we got out and we were on the bus to the hotel where we were staying and I was slowly realizing that my vision was not what was going to happen. <laughs> Newark, for anyone who's never been there, has one of the highest crime rates in the country. <laughs> and its favorite shade of color is gray. Everything is gray. All of Newark is completely gray. But then we got in the hotel. And then I started flying high. Model UN is basically a weekend of hanging out with kids from all over the world while you pretend to be a delegate from a country. So it's kind of this sort of power trip where you're like, wow, I'm the delegate from Turkey. I can do whatever I want. I am Turkey. I am the nation of Turkey. But also, you get to hang out with all your friends and you've got a buffet. Oh, incredible. It's an immaculate experience. And I was feeling so good. But then... The trip came to an end, and we were about to get on a plane to go back home to Boston, and they were like, there's no plane to go home to Boston. <laughs> so we were sitting in the hotel in Newark for the rest of the night. We slept on the floor of a ballroom, which is an experience of its own. But this story is also about how I met my girlfriend of now. During that time, we had to find something to fill the void. We had no Model UN. Everyone was gone. Even the Japanese kids had left after a delay of some kind. <laughs> and we were just sitting there alone. So my friend was like, hey, Addison, do you want to play a game? Never play a game when they won't tell you what the rules are beforehand. <laughs> so our game consisted of me taking my hand like this, someone else doing the same thing, and then slapping each other on the hand until someone gave up. So the first person I did it with was my future girlfriend. We linked hands and we started going at it. What you do is you take turns. You just slap and then wait. Both of our hands were these bright red colors and I had tears like on the verge of my eyes and she just had this stony gaze. She was completely ready to take me down. I was done for. And that, I think, is when I knew I wanted to go out with her. <laughs> You just, when someone can slap you and never give up, when they can just keep pushing through no matter how many times you slap them back, that's when you know. That's when you know. <laughs> and so when the airplane finally was taking us back to Boston and I looked across the aisle and that was the, only, that was the second time she had ever been on an airplane and I was still coming off the high from Model UN. <sighs> I was flying so high. <laughs> Welcome to the stage, Kevin Brady. In 1992, I had hair. <laughs> Bi-level haircut, shaved in the back, shaved in the side, long over here. I had uh, three earrings, pointy leather shoes, and maybe overalls with one strap undone. So I was in a band, Modern Logic. The name made no sense. Don't try to make sense of it. Modern Logic doesn't make any sense. <laughs> New wave band. Uh, by 1992, we had played about 1,000 shows. And if one thing we learned in those 1,000 shows was that there was no record label in America who wanted to sign Modern Logic. <laughs> But then something happened on the 1,001 show. It's hard to say that. Um, somebody opened up for us uh, whose name was the Dave Matthews Band. <laughs> <laughs> By 
by the laughter, I can tell you know that man and what the meteoric <laughs> rise that happened to them. Also, by the laughter, you possibly could mean that you realize that did not happen to me, and you're laughing, you know, in, in, <laughs> at that cruel fate. But I hope it is the former and not the latter. Um, what happened after that was that agents and people kind of flooded into Charlottesville, Virginia, where my band was. And uh, there was this kind of a bubbling as if it was going to be the new Athens, Georgia. Uh, and so managers came in. Manager came and found some of the bands who were in Charlottesville. Let's not even say doing well in Charlottesville. Let's say in Charlottesville. And they found us and they said, uh, maybe you, do you need a management? You need a manager. He said, hell yeah, we need a manager. <laughs> we had put four records out and nothing was happening. So he said, I have connections. I'm going to set you up in Nashville. We're going to do a showcase for you. One shot, and you have this place full of all the different uh, record people in the country. You're going to be there. You're going to kill. We're all going to make a lot of money. I'm like, that sounds good. <laughs> so he says, two months time, August, uh, we're going to be in Nashville performing the showcase. Guys, get your act together. So we did nothing. Day and night, we were so excited. We were flying high. <laughs> And uh, so we practiced day and night, night and day, going over our 10-song set. We practiced all of our improvisational dance moves. We, we practiced all of our posing and our sneering and our, and our drama. And everything was, uh, was tight, tight, tight. We were really good. Everything was figured out. We went down to Nashville two days early because I think we wanted to get acclimated to the, we, had, we didn't want any like jet lag from our like 10-hour drive. I don't know why that made any sense, but. There were no expense spared. We wanted to be completely ready for this experience. Uh, and so we got there the day of the show. Show was at 5 p.m. for some reason. Apparently A&R people from the labels don't like to go out late. They have families, so we played our show at 5 p.m. <laughs> we rolled into the, uh, into the club in Nashville, huge club, bigger than we ever played. Lights, everything was beautiful. We came in and uh, we loaded in, got everything set up just perfectly, went back to the dressing room. Just wanted to stay there so that the all the A&R people uh, would, not, we would not spoil the big surprise when we hit the stage in all of our new wave attire. And um, so we sat there, and we were so nervous, all of us. This is a band nine years uh, in, 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 in the making. Uh, all of our parents were very, one of whom is here today, were very, uh, all of our expensive uh, degrees had gone to waste for four or five years. <laughs> playing music to very small amount of people. And uh, so we're in, the, we're in the dressing room. Our drummer is literally throwing up uh, before the show, so nervous. This is the one moment that is the cusp of everything. And um, so our deal was going out that the first three guys, I was the lead singer, uh, and the first three guys would go out first, and they'd play the first opening bits of the first tune. I would come out running to the stage, I would grab the mic. I'm not going to grab the mic here, don't worry. Uh, and I would launch into the first guttural yell that would completely already have them re reaching for their checkbooks to sign the band Modern Logic and to uh, make us famous the world over. So they are out there. They're playing the first four bars. I'm off, off in the wings doing one last, you can do this, Kevin. You can do this. You can do this. Hit the, hit the fourth, fourth bar. I run to the stage. I hit the, hit the, hit the front stage. There are two people in the audience. <laughs> it's a story about flying high and crashing as well. Um, two people there. One um, is the waitress, uh, or bartender. Or I, couldn't, I thought it was a person who may be an A&R person, but actually she was serving the other person. So that was actually down to one. The one person was um, really was probably a homeless uh, bum, I think, really. <laughs> But we convinced ourselves that, you know, you never know what A&R guys are like. Perhaps this was, you know, the guy. So we put on the most intense, sweaty, uh, committed, impassioned performance you have ever seen for one person. <laughs> and, you know, we've, he left like five songs in, so we were playing for only the bartender and the waitress. And, uh, you know, that was the set finished, and we put our uh, gear away in the slowest manner possible without any words spoken. And uh, six months later, I was in New York City trying to start a salsa band and starting a new career. So there we go. <laughs> and that's the story.
Our next storytelling team is Andy and Julia. Hello, everybody. When we um, first heard of this idea of flying high as the motif, the first thing I did was check with Julia to see whether she'd had any recent flying high moments. Uh, as a 15-year-old, she swore she didn't. So we'll move on to a different story. <laughs> and um, this story is about uh, moving to uh, Brazil. And the story dates back uh, about eight years ago. And this had always been my dream to live in Brazil. And um, it, even so much my dream that I married my wife, Kristen, who actually previously lived in Brazil and already spoke Portuguese. So I guess this was my fate to at some point uh, move to Brazil. And finally, the opportunity arose where I uh, got a transfer from my job to move there. And my older daughter, Julia, was going into the fourth grade. And my younger daughter, Anna, was going into the first grade. And so we had to figure out how we were going to break this news to them. So of course, uh, we did what any parent would do, which is we went on vacation to Brazil to the most beautiful beach that uh, we could possibly find. We gave them tons of ice cream every single day. Thank you. <laughs> and, uh, and we tried to convince them that this moving to Brazil um, idea was a good idea. Um, so about um, almost to the end of the week, being totally spoiled, we sat them down and said, um, well, guess what, guys? We're moving to Brazil. And my younger daughter, Anna, immediately burst out crying. And uh, Julia initially said, wow, I love Brazil. That's so exciting. But as time went on, um, she grew more and more disenchanted with the idea of moving to Brazil and leaving her best friend behind. And so uh, as time went on and we got to the date we were going to move, um, Things were getting worse and worse, and, and I went down a couple days ahead of time uh, to um, kind of get ready. And I remember calling home, and uh, Anna was on the phone saying, Daddy, I don't want to go. And um, of course, I'm feeling horrible um, as a parent to um, be inflicting this uh, on my children. And I, of course, before that, my wife had also been crying for one evening. But I assuaged her by telling her that we would get a dog when we moved back. So that, that took care of that problem. <laughs> um, so I'm going to now pass the mic to uh, Julia, who can tell you a little bit about the actual moving day. So one of my most vivid memories is stepping onto the plane at Dulles Airport. And like the exact step as I was leaving leaving DC and stepping onto the plane and thinking to myself, this is it, you know, this is happening. Like, this is the most surreal thing that had ever happened to me. And it still feels surreal. Like, what, we live there? Um, and, and I stepped onto the plane and, and like, just couldn't, couldn't believe it was happening. And we arrived, and I still couldn't believe it. And we got there, and it was freezing cold. Like, it was cold. I was like, I thought this was a tropical country. Um, and so we huddled into the car, and we drove through the city. And all like I saw this like dark, like, broken down city. You could see poverty everywhere. It's it's you know parts of it are very nice. This is São Paulo, Brazil, and parts of it are very nice, but a lot large parts of it are, are slums. And this is a huge contrast to our home in Washington D.C. But um, we get to our house and we pull up. It's a nice house, and this was just the place I was going to be in for, for three years. And I was just overcome by just the, the feeling of apprehension and also excitement in this new place. It was, it was rough at first. And I remember coming home after school and running to the couch and crying. But it, it got better. <laughs> so so to, to continue the story um, and to give you a sense of how cold it was, uh, and I, had, of course, promised tropical weather at all times to get them excited about moving down there. Um, the people, my coworkers in the office the next day were all talking about how excited it had been that they could finally use those winter coats they'd had in the closet for the last 10 years and never gotten out. It was about 40 degrees. And we ended up buying firewood so that the kids could sleep right by the fireplace in the house and, and stay warm over the evening. No furniture in the house, of course. 
So time went on, and um, in the beginning, they started to get used to school. In the beginning, they're like, I don't like Brazil. I like Washington. But then a little bit over time, it became, well, I like Washington, but Brazil's not so bad. And they started to make more friends. And over time, the, the complaining kind of went down a little bit, and the enjoyment level went up for the kids. And my angst about bringing them down there also uh, started to decline. And over time, three years went by, and we had to make a decision where, um, whether we would stay extra time or not. And so uh, we called a family uh, meeting to decide what we wanted to do. And um, at that moment, the kids said, Dad, let's stay another year. And at that moment, I was flying high. Thanks. Next on the mic, we have Bob Costa. Okay, so uh, this story is like a 20-minute story I got to do in five minutes, so <laughs> I'm going to ask you to use your imagination a little bit. And particularly when I say under the influence, you pick your under the influence of choice. And uh, <clears throat> okay, so uh, this back in the late 70s, my wife got a job as a housekeeper uh, in a very nice home out on the Cape. And uh, the people who owned the home also owned the plane, and they flew back and forth to New York City and uh, Provincetown. And uh, I'm glad to tell the story because it's Provincetown, and it's really why I came here to tell it. Um, so one day, um, the lady of the house would go down all the time shopping. She'd spend the day, go take the plane for a day and come back and go shopping. And uh, one day she knew that we had some friends we wanted to visit down there, and she said, hey, why don't you come along? Well, really? Great. So we pack up and we go and we fly down to New York City, and uh, it's actually in, in uh, Teterboro, New Jersey is where the plane lands. And, and a limousine comes and picks us up and takes us to the door of our friend's house. And we are really impressed. This is just great, you know? And the uh, driver says, well, I'll come back and pick you up at such and such a time and blah, blah, blah. And we said, okay, fine. And uh, we get into the house and we're talking to people and friends are showing up and we're having a great time and everybody is wanting to get under the influence. And, uh, <laughs> and we're saying, well, you know, we don't know when we're gonna leave actually, so go ahead, you know, we're gonna wait. We're not gonna, we're not gonna uh, participate in that right now because we don't know uh, when we're going and, and whatever. And uh, anyhow, a few hours go by, and uh, I'm thinking, gee, I'm surprised they haven't called yet. Um, I'm going to give them a call. And I call, and they say, oh, no, everything is fine. It's fine. It's beautiful. Every, you know, we'll be there about whatever the time was, 4 or 5 o'clock, and, uh, and you can just go about what you're doing. And we're going, okay, well, you know, maybe, maybe we can celebrate a little bit. You know, it's going to be kind of relaxed. And uh, 10 minutes later, the phone rings, and... Uh, they say, you know, we're thinking that uh, the weather is going down a little bit, and maybe we ought to leave sooner. I'm going, okay, fine. When we left, it was a nice sunny day, and I look out the window, and it's starting to get a little gray out there, and I see a couple of snowflakes coming down. I'm going, well, you know, it's not that bad. And, uh, so we went on, and then we get another phone call, and they said, you know, uh, we just got a report uh, from the airport, and they're saying that it's probably not a good idea to go up, and so maybe we're going to stay over. So is, are you people okay for staying over? I said, well, yeah, yeah, we'll stay with our friends. It'll be fine. And uh, so we said, we're staying over. This is great. We, we can all, like, you know, abuse ourselves and, and have a great time and amongst friends. And, um, and so we're just about ready to go, and then the phone rings again. And they're going, you know what? We think we better go. Because tomorrow morning is going to be even worse. So we're going to go. And uh, we go, oh, geez, okay, great. Well, another phone call comes five minutes later saying we're not going to go. So we decide, okay, this is it. We're imbibing. And we do. And five minutes later, the phone rings and says there's going to be a car picking you up in 15 minutes. <laughs> oh, my God. <sighs> so um, we say our goodbyes. We go down, and we get, as we get to the car, now these people are the most wonderful, generous, beautiful people. And we go down to the car, and we get in there already in the, in the limo, and uh, dead silence, nobody's saying anything. We notice that the sky is really, really dark and the snow is really coming down. And I'm thinking to myself as we're getting into the car and we're going to the airport, 
they're not going to take off. We're going to wind up in some hotel in New Jersey or something like that. You know, there's just no way they're going out in this. And uh, anyhow, we get out to the airport and we're actually getting onto the plane. You know, and as we're getting onto the plane, the gentleman of the house seems like really upset. The lady of the house seems like she might have been imbibing too. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and I am just really nervous because as we're getting into the plane, the snow is really calming down. And the, the airport is covered in snow. And uh, we get into the plane. And this is just, you know, like it's a very nice plane. But it's only got two engines. And they're propellers. They're not jets. And uh, anyhow, so we get going. And uh, we're taking off. And uh, we're up in the air. And as we're going up in the air, I can hear the radio. It's a small plane, so you hear everything the pilot is hearing. And uh, they're saying that the airspace is supposed to be vacant. Nobody is supposed to be up in the air. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking at Christine, who is all starting to ohm, <laughs> putting her fingers together like that. I'm sure really this is what she does, you know. And she starts meditating. So I'm going, oh my god, this is not going to be good. And now, so the trip from Teterboro Airport to Provincetown is about an hour, an hour and 10 minutes. We're up in the air about an hour and a half already, buffeting all, all over the place. And I hear the person of the house asking the pilot, well, how much longer we got to go? He says, well, I think we'll be there in about 45 minutes. And I'm going, oh my god, we should have been there, you know, 15 or 20 minutes ago. And we got another 45 minutes. And we're flying. And I notice at one point the pilot opening up the window on the side, <laughs> sticking his hand out, and going like this on the window. I'm serious. And I'm saying, OK, this is it. We are going down. And, uh, and nobody is talking. And I'm looking at Christine, but her eyes are closed, and she is not responding to me. And I am, I'm sure that my fingerprints are still in the armrest of that plane on that seat. Um, anyhow, finally, we hear the pilot saying, OK, we're, we're going to make an approach now. We're at the airport. And I'm going, thank God, we're at the airport. And he goes down, and he goes down, and he goes down. And as he's going down, you could see this, there's a big storm going on. The waves of the ocean are just about that far from the wheels of the plane. And they are like raging, you know? And I'm going, oh my god, I can't believe it. And he's going, he's going, going, going. And then all of a sudden, he goes right back up again. I'm going, what's wrong? He says, I can't get the lights on. The airport is closed. They have a switch, and the pilots have a switch to turn the airport lights on so they can land. He can't turn the lights on. OK, so we go, and he says, I'm going to try it again. We go down, and again, the ocean, and you know, and <laughs> it's crazy. I am almost crying at this point, you know. And uh, he can't get the lights on. We go up again. <laughs> Anyhow, the third try, we go down, and I see the lights go on. And I see how horrible the weather really is. <laughs> so now I am completely freaking out. You know, Christine is oming. The, the lady of the house is not speaking. And the gentleman of the house is so, his face is almost red from being angry at this pilot for taking off in this weather. And finally, we come down, and we land. And we get to the end of the runway, and the plane stops. We're getting out. Nobody is speaking to anybody. I get down on my hands and knees in the wet ground. I kiss the ground. <laughs> Flying high. And our final storyteller for the evening is Gordon Peabody. So we just come through the time of the moon together. And as we all know, during the time of the moon, unusual things happen. Sometimes when we're experiencing an unusual moment, perhaps at the time of the moon, we accept it as normal. And we just ride it like a cheap sled, knowing it won't last. So a few years ago, not far from where we're sitting tonight, where I'm standing, I had a small writing studio on the beach. And in return for some of the rent, it was early November. Uh, some local people had been burned out of their homes by a fire, and the Red Cross had put them up. And we were asked to do some painting work to help better their situation. So I was running a painting crew. 
of an oddball assortment of people like you'd find in Provincetown, <coughs> expect to find them on a painting job in November. <laughs> and uh, it was the time of the moon. It was early November. It was the time of the moon. We're outside on the deck having a coffee break together. No lunch. We just kept drinking coffee. And um, I noticed that right at the moment of high tide, right at noon as the moon was overhead, that everything seemed to stop, that the wind laid right down and the whole harbor turned into a mirror that was full of clouds. And all the colors in the sea were in the sky and all the colors of the sky were in the sea. And I was thinking, you know, I may never need to know anything else besides this. My reverie was immediately broken, I'd had my moment, uh, by a, a shrill female voice going, sh shark, sh shark. <laughs> so, I had seen sharks, but I'd never seen a shush shark. So, you know, I'd spent a lot of time fishing for giant tuna and whatnot, so I'm looking out in the harbor, and there's a lone fin circling coming in towards the beach. I immediately recognized it as a tuna, but I assumed it was an uh, uh, albacore. Some of those have been around. It was November. And I figured, wow, if that comes in close enough, maybe I can harpoon it. We can have a barbecue for all the people that have been burned out of their home and, of course, our painting crew or something. And I, something primal got off the, slipped off the leash in my brain. And I, you know, I'd never done this before. Obviously, when you hear the story, you know I'm never going to do it again. And uh, at the time, I didn't realize it was over 300-pound giant bluefin tuna. I thought it was a 40-pound albacore. Guys always think they're right, don't they? So I had the, the guys in my crew go into my writing studio, and I picked up a harpoon at a yard sale for a few bucks. I'd never used it. It was kind of a curio. And then washed up in the surf after a storm was a barb that went with a harpoon on a tangled ball of line. Took my shoes off, took the stuff out of my pockets. I waded into the water. I had the barb on the harpoon. Three people were trying to untangle the ball of line. It was a rat's nest, you know? Trying to untangle it, and I'm going out, and I get to a point where I'm starting to float a little bit. My friend Paul was rowing in. I knew he had a harpoon in his boat, but I couldn't see the fish. All I could see was a fin and the clouds right about where that gentleman's sitting over there, no offense. Uh, and it was too shallow an angle to really get it. Plus, I'd never had a harpoon in my hand in my life. All I'd done was <laughs> see a few movies, you know, but, and there I was in my own life, you know, so I couldn't really, couldn't really get the shot in. And my friend Paul is coming by, he said, what are you doing? And I said, turtle knowing he had a harpoon on his boat, and I didn't want him getting involved in my primal journey. <laughs> so, <laughs> knowing, knowing also, no offense, Paul, that it would take him until he rode all the way in to figure out that I wasn't harpooning a turtle. So he made it into the shore, and he comes over. He says, why are you harpooning a turtle? I said, it's a giant tuna. He said, get in my rowboat. So that's when time started moving at a different rate. I jumped up into his rowboat. Immediately, I could look down on the water. It's like, my god, there's maybe a 100-pound fish. Again, guys are bad with math when they're harpooning, you know? It was over 300 pounds. I throw the harpoon. The barb comes off. The guys on the beach are still like this. I said, let's step on it, you know, because the bitter end had to be tied to Paul's boat. But things didn't work out the way I wanted them to, you know? <laughs> Not that the people working with me are always slow, but these guys were slow. and. Paul's there in his rowboat, and he, you know, this all started happening, and the fish just takes off. These fish can go 30 miles an hour. And uh, thought, my God, we're going to run out of line. We all had about 30 feet of line there, and the rest was in this ball the size of a woman's hat. So as a fish is shooting out, I take the line, and I try and hold it in my hands, and it ripped all the meat out of my hands. And I, I'm looking at Hamburger Helper firsthand here, you know, so it's like, well, this isn't going to work, but as these things are happening, being a guy, I've got to assess them one at a time. So I cinched, <laughs> I cinched the line down over the transom of Paul's boat. It's a homemade rowboat, so it's just a piece of plywood with plywood sides, uh, no accoutrements. So uh, I set it over the stern of his boat, and the fish pulled the whole boat right underwater. So Paul, Paul lost one of his oars then that he still squawks about when I see him. This was years ago, for goodness sakes. And by that time, the guys on the beach had finished getting the line together. We had the line tied on the boat, and we were off. 
Uh, people at one of the restaurants said they thought we had a small motor. We went shooting off <laughs> and off into terra incognita. Where do you go when you have a 300-pound fish on the leash? And um, you're not really thinking then, you're kind of responding. The boat was half full of water. Paul likes to travel light. No bailer, no life jackets. There was one empty gas can. He'd lost another one he was squawking about. We had one oar. So we did a little inventory while we're shooting at, you know, 20 miles an hour towards the east end of town. And uh, I'm trying to figure, what are we going to do next? So I remember that if you put pressure on a big fish, it'll bring them up. So. I start hauling the line in a little bit with what was left on my fingers, and as, as I got it up, the fish just came up to the surface. We had like six feet of water up over my head. Now, it just so happened that one of, one of the uh, uh, people that was working with me was a professional photographer, and she had a suitcase full of lenses, and so all this is photo documented. What are the chances of that happening, you know? In Provincetown, they're good. So by now, we're off the Muse restaurant, and, and we couldn't figure out what to do next. So I pull the fish up short, or several hundred yards, maybe, I don't know, several hundred yards offshore, and we're starting to go around in circles. We're starting to go around in circles, and Paul said, I'm getting dizzy. And so I tried standing up to get a better purchase on the fish to try and get his tail out of the water, but it just wasn't, fish wasn't cooperating. So I yelled into the shore to my crew that were following us along the beach. Uh, just like something you'd see in a movie you wouldn't see twice. There, you know, this ragtag bunch of people, you know, coming along the beach. And um, I said, get my shark rig. Well, the shark rig is another thing I never used in my life. It's a big rusty hook, 12-foot uh, section of dog leash chain, and maybe 30 feet of line. So Bert rows it out to me and his girlfriend's holding it, and she's wearing pearls. And I'm thinking, why is she wearing pearls to a painting job, you know? <laughs> so she hands me that. So now, now, the story's going to be over so quickly that it's going to shock even me that the, uh, <laughs> the pearls were like the only logical moment in my life that day. <laughs> so she was very attractive, but I mean, you don't need pearls anyway. So we're going around in circles. Now I've got the harpoon line going to the fish's head in one hand. And now I've got my shark rig. I've never used it in my life. You know, I was like, oh yeah, that's my shark rig. So we're going around in circles like this. Maybe it was the other way. We're going around in circles and I'm throwing the shark rig out and I've got to foul hook this fish on his tail to stop him from moving so we can get him into the beach. Paul's frantically trying to oar us in, complaining, you know, I wish I had my other oar. It's like, it's not my problem, you know? It's your boat, why weren't they tied in, you know? So <clears throat> by now we're getting a little closer to the beach because the fish is kind of going around and kind of pulling us in. So what ends up happening is after going around about six times, Paul's saying he's getting seasick. He's a sailor, he's a fisherman, for goodness sakes. He said, I'm, I'm getting dizzy, I'm getting woozy. He's sitting down, I'm standing up and the boat's half full of water, and it's going like this and like this. We're going to go over. We're going to go over. It's only November. What's the big deal, you know? So finally, I really threw it as far as I could, and we went around again and then went around again. It was in the right place. I grabbed it. The only thing I'd overlooked is in that turn, it wrapped around my ankles. I'm a guy. I'm going to make mistakes, you know? So now I have the fish's head on one hand, and the fish's tail on the other hand, and to be honest with you, I still don't remember which was which. All I know is we kind of stopped the fish, Paul got us oared into the beach, and I had everybody in my crew come out up to chest weight and pull the fish in green to the beach, uh, except JK, and later we paid him for staying out of the way. <laughs> Money well spent, everyone knows exactly what I mean. And um, we, ended up, we ended up selling the fish. It was the only fish that had been caught in two weeks. It went to Japan. Uh, it sold for about seven grand. We got just over $3,000. I felt so bad for killing a beautiful fish that after I paid all my crew, we donated all the money to the people that had been burned out uh, of their home because I figured maybe the fish was coming in to offer itself. Uh, thank you. Thank you for listening to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast 2014 summer season.
The Mosquito is produced by Tidal Theatre Company, Caitlin Langstaff, and Vanessa Vardabedian, and was sponsored by WOMR 92.1 in Provincetown and WBUR 89.1 in Brewster. You can keep up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and subscribe to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast on iTunes. Join us again in 2015 for more Story Slams on the Outer Cape and your chance to bite it live.